Welcome back to Sustainably Influence, the podcast guiding you through the minefield of sustainability with your hosts Charlotte Williams and Bianca Foley. This season we'll be interviewing experts in sustainability and ethical living to shed a little light on the many terms used across industries, discussing the different aspects of living a conscious lifestyle and how we can do our bit to make a difference. Today we're joined by published scientist, ecologist and model Zinnia Kumar. We talk about performative sustainability and how sustainable fashion and ecosystems are linked. Hi Zinnia, thanks for joining us. Hello, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Um, you have an extremely impressive bio. There's a lot on it that we couldn't actually fit into the introduction. <laughs> so in your own words, could you kind of tell us what it is that you do? Um, I'll, I'll do my best. I'll try and break it down to just the important bits. So I'm a published scientist, a fashion model with anti-agency in London. Uh, representation, colorism, and sustainability advocate and entrepreneur. Uh, I'm also an ecologist accredited by the Chartered Institute of Ecological and Environmental Managers in the UK, a former conservation biologist who used to work in the Australian outback with water birds, penguins, and marine invertebrates. And I am a colorism and South Asian representation advocate working on a documentary at the moment. And also, finally, I'm also an entrepreneur and the founder of a sustainability, inclusion, and diversity consultancy called The Dotted Line, among other things. Um, yeah, so I guess I just follow my passions wherever they go and I end up doing different things. So that's kind of how my life story has gone. I feel like I had to hold my breath when you were saying that until you got to the end. I was like, oh my God, there's so much. <laughs> so I love that you, everything that you do is slightly different, but there are links yeah. there, which is amazing. And it's a lot of the links is just to do with humans, us yes. being humans and what we should and shouldn't be doing um, as humans to be better. So I'm really into that. Um, so we want to talk about how the environment, conservation and sustainable fashion are linked today. So can you kind of shed some light on that? Well, so my background's in ecology and ecology is the study of the relationships between living organisms, including humans and their physical environment. And it seeks to understand the vital connections between plants and animals in the world around them. And so just as you were saying, it's all about humans is the main link between I guess each world and each world system and I think there's such an idea of thinking of people as separate to the natural world but we're so interconnected with it so um, I guess I want to shed some light today of how we're so interconnected with it because um, everyday fashion and beauty choices regardless if it's a high net worth person or a middle class person or someone from a very low socioeconomic background actually has a direct effect on the social and ecological world around us. And, you know, we've kind of stopped seeing fur and that kind of thing on the high street, yeah. um, including endangered chinchilla fur, but that kind of still gets sold behind closed doors. And, I mean, for this, I wanted to give an example of how even one particular brand selling chinchilla fur can have a really big impact in the natural environment of that particular animal. Like, for example, now, um, if you... Fendi has these catalogs right now, which are available to um, their boutique clients. And they have lists upon lists of these chinchilla fur coats, which cost thousands of dollars to purchase. And they're made of over 200 bodies, each of these coats to make. And, you know, if these coats, regardless if they're made at a farm or at or harvested in the wild, the problem is you have celebrities as well, like, for example, Floyd Mayweather, who I saw launching his Rolls Royce carpet made of 300 chinchilla bodies and you know it's kind of like valorizing this idea that this animal product is 
something that should be attainable and should is, is something that is luxurious. But what ends up happening is it drives poaching in an underground manner, in an unsustainable manner in the wild. Because, you know, when you have poor locals in the Andes with very little economic work um, and organized smuggling rings who are designed to exploit these systems, you get these poachers taking all of these chinchillas out of the wild to make these lucrative income sources to reach the demand that's in the UK, US and the European market. So it's all about those raw materials and um, accessing them. So I, I think it's really important for all of us to realize that our choices here in the developed world really affect people, ecosystem and environment in the natural world, in the developing world as well. It's kind of like the Newton's third law of motion where there's an equal and opposite reaction for every choice and everything that we make. And conscious choices are really important, not for the majority, but for every single individual. Because if one person wants chin a chinchilla coat, for example, that will result in a farm killing 200 plus chinchillas. And then poachers in the Andes who think people still want chinchilla fur will kill another 200 animals in the wild and try and sell them through the black market. So you end up getting this dual system of double kill where you get double the destruction not because of the disconnect of, I suppose, our um, developing and developed world ecosystems and the way we kind of harvest these natural resources. Um, yeah, so our, it, it's really important to kind of address our choices because, you know, in 10 years' time, it's estimated in 2030, chinchillas will be, co will be completely extinct in the wild because of fashion and capitalism. There's so much that goes on that you don't think about as, like, you don't realise the, the the volume and the sheer volume of or the numbers of animals that need to be killed to create this like one garment or one trim of a fur hood or something like that. It's actually quite when you sit down and break it down and speak about it in such depth. And also, who the hell is wearing chinchilla coats and carpets? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Like we're so past that in terms yeah. of like even like trends, like chinchillas. We're big with like I remember like Kidney and um like Nicholas B.I.G. wearing it in like the noughties. We're you know 20 years on from there, guys. What can we not just yeah, find? Exactly. I totally agree with you. Like it's just you know you're just like, oh come on. Fashion just... <laughs> is the environment. Yeah. That's what's on trends. Like look at Fashion Week this this uh season. Their theme is about like environmentalism, which you know is a bit interesting in itself um but you know being environmentalist is on trend yeah definitely um it, i guess that leads us to performative sustainability yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice little segue there likes that oh, i loved it <laughs> yeah we've spoken before about greenwashing on the, yeah on the podcast last season but Performative sustainability is actually a term that I haven't heard before and you mentioned it to us and I'd really like to get your stance on what that is and what we should be looking out for. Hmm. Okay, um, so performative sustainability includes greenwashing as well, but there's also kind of a host of other uh, elements to it that I guess we as consumers kind of overlook as well sometimes because we, we aren't just really aware of it sometimes. So um. So it's basically when instead of making a tangible change by addressing the factors related to sustainability, for example, making su supply chains and products sustainable, ethical, recyclable and beneficial to underprivileged communities, businesses instead engage in performative actions that appear to engage an action sustainable practice. 
But the reality is these are like PR performances that do not lead to direct tangible change or change within the business structure to align with the commitments proposed. So um, most often performative sustainability is used when brands um, actually have a lot of public outcry and the investors demand a response for this public outcry. So um, they propose a lot of these ethical and sustainable commitments to keep consumers captivated in that brand and to make sure they don't get cancelled, I suppose. And um, But the actual result is there isn't any resulting progress for an extended period of time. So it also occurs when advertisers claim to provide ethical, philanthropic and ecological community benefits, but don't follow through with their claims. And alarmingly, you know, social and environmental sustainability is not policed. It's voluntary incorporated, voluntarily incorporated in companies and allows performatively sustainable brands to maximize PR whilst undertaking the minimum possible effort to be ethical or sustainable for profit. So when you have brands that are genuinely sustainable and you have a brand that's performing sustainably, as a consumer, it's really difficult to tell who's genuinely sustainable and who is performing sustainable and getting all of these awards and kind of accolades and aligning themselves with particular organizations and um, accrediting bodies. So it's kind of a gray area that I think is really important to um, examine because you've got companies who are really sacrificing their income streams to really make sure their entire supply chains are sustainable. And you've got companies who are not doing it, but are pretending they are almost. And as a consumer, we can't tell the difference. Um, and I have a really great example of this. It's from Australia. There was an eyewear brand. This happened last year. And so one of its main um, selling points was that it was selling glasses. It was also giving a pair of glasses to an underprivileged person in a developing country. But what ended up happening was a consumer watchdog found that um, in the five years this company had sold 320,000 glasses it had only provided 3,000 glasses to underprivileged communities. And so there was a big case in the courts. And, but, you know, the court said that it was misleading claims that these consumers had been exploited because of a desire to support social responsibility and charitable causes. And, I mean, that's just one example. But the problem with performative sustainability and um, ethics is that it's rarely investigated. We don't have a policing body that can go in and test or check until someone flags it up to a consumer watchdog. And I think what's even more alarming is that 66% of the fashion industry has not made any sustainable or ethical commitments or actually implemented these in uh, to their businesses. So, yeah. I think, I think there's starting to be changed, though, with covid and the pandemic and people seeing and i don't even know if it's just because they've realized now that people weren't shopping or that their businesses have been so heavily impacted because they've had huge amounts of stock or whatever or back orders to fill that now yeah. larger fashion houses are starting to change and they're trying to they're not doing seasonal um collections anymore they're kind of doing like more of an evergreen looking collection and it's nice to see that the changes are coming, whether in some sense, whether it is performative or not, because I'm quite happy mm. to see now people thinking about it, even if they're thinking about their pocket rather than the environment, yeah. the two are interlinked. So to see that change is actually really encouraging for me. Definitely. I think, um, I think you're definitely right there. And I think the bigger a company is, 
the slower the change is. And there is a there is quite a difference between performative sustainability and like progress that is happening that is quite slow as well. So um it's not necessarily about you know calling out someone straight away, but it's when you know nothing has happened for five years. There's no progress, nothing. But um you know, the bigger something is and the, and the more high quality a product is, like, for example, like a luxury fashion house, the level of trying to replace those materials and change those supply chains is going to be really, really difficult. So, I mean, I really do appreciate the, um, the levels of thought and consciousness going into sustainability right now, because I think it is quite a movement happening right now. But, um, yeah, I think then maybe needs to be kind of like a global or like an international standardized way of being able to measure this because there isn't right now. And that's kind of like the gray area that we as consumers face. Yeah, it's how do you measure how ethical or how sustainable a brand is? I mean, there's a couple of different apps and websites that kind of give you an index, but at the same time, there's something greater than that at play. And it, Definitely. You can tick all the boxes on paper but really what are you doing behind closed doors so there does need to be some sort of standardization I totally agree can I ask a question what's your thoughts and this is something I think this is kind of off top flipping it on flipping the script and what we've just been talking about but if we look at brands like as an example Oatly who have recently been cancelled across the internet I don't know if you've seen um oh, sorry is Oatly um are an incredible brand in terms of being a sustainable brand and they have a sustainability report that they they um send out, they publish every every year and they they're very transparent with what they do but recently um we have found out that 30 percent of their company is owned by um chinese 30 percent of their company is owned by a chinese company that two parts of it they are um linked to supporting Trump there's links to parts of China um and genocides within um like Muslim community within China there's like lots of different pinpoints Mm. here which are really bad things and that's where they're getting a lot of their money and I'm kind of on the fence here and I'm finding it really difficult I haven't had a conversation with anyone about this so this is just a talk um because I know Bianca you've kind of said your bit on on social media to say Oatly's cancelled I'm not drinking Oatly anymore I am struggling because they are a brand that are doing the absolute most to be transparent apart from this little bit be transparent to um be sustainable to be ethical to pay their staff to do all of this stuff but they've been given funding from companies that don't necessarily do that but then in my mind I'm thinking well they that that money has come to create good so where Mm. where do you that kind of it's not so much about the brand itself but the whole idea of not great brands like tobacco brand, uh, brands mm. and fossil fuel focused industries putting money into sustainability and into um kind of ethical uh yeah into ethical brands um which will go on to do better yeah that? because i'm really um, on the well i mean i'm just thinking of this from okay so i'm just gonna go far back here into like environmental and conservation issues basically so i mean the main problem and the reason why there's not enough environmentalists and conservationists in the world right now is because we're so underpaid it's because the government doesn't pay us very well and actually i know most people 
absolutely hate when industry gets involved, but actually it's a lot of the time industry is the one who can actually give the funds to a lot of these kind of change making or like conservation projects, even if they're, you know, for example, a oil and gas company, because they make so much money uh, and the government will refuse to give money into conservation projects because they see it as like a money sink, for example. So, I mean, it does create a lot of change as well, because at the end of the day, money is required to create a lot of conservation projects and the sustenance of those projects over a long period of time. Without that, they kind of just die out and nothing happens. So, I mean, it's I think it's a bit of a gray area and it's it probably needs a bit of unpacking because it is a positive thing. But at the same time, when the ethical elements of a company are really so far removed and they're supporting this, that company that is supporting, for example, Oatly, should really address their issues. It's not necessarily Oatly who is, you know, the negative one, I would think in my head. I would say it's the one who's supporting them. Like, for example, if it's a oil and gas company and they're destroying huge sections of the Amazon and they've suddenly supported, I don't know, my coffee cup, <laughs> right? Um, I would I would ask or at least lobby as like as a collective consumers to get the oil and gas company to change their ways. Because I think there's so much of this cancellation of the second party, not necessarily the first party. I think this also comes down to, I mean, colorism as well, basically, where you've got these huge conglomerate beauty conglomerates who are selling this idea of skin color discrimination, but it's the celebrities who front these ads that end up getting the stick of it. And no one ever addresses the big companies. So I think we need to like, maybe take a step back as a whole community and consumers and really kind of lobby and push the people who are doing the really, really bad things to change. I mean, I don't know if that answers your question, but actually it does. It does. <laughs> but actually that reminds me of something else. Um it, it actually relates into this as well, which is sustainability rating system. So right now, as I was talking about earlier with um these rating systems and that kind of thing, what happens is each one is self-assessed and self-applied and self-acknowledged and self-rated. So there's no controls for anything. And what's happening is you've got all these industry bodies that you were just kind of talking about that kind of join one particular rating body. For example, the HIG MSI rating system which rates animal fossil fuel fabrics as high on the sustainability scale, whilst products that are animal derived or natural derived are low on the sustainability scale. So they're saying that it's unsustainable. But then when you look at the people and the companies that are supporting this kind of rating organization, they're all kind of fossil fuel based acrylic fabric and you know synthetic fabric companies. And the reality is synthetic fabrics, I don't know how much you know about like what the waste that comes from them. So even in the use cycle, when you wash a synthetic fabric, a lot of particles come out of that and go into water waste. So 20 to 35% of the plastic in our oceans and within the animals in deep sea are from clothing that were washed in washing machines and been ingested by these animals. So, I mean, whereas on the other end of the scale, organic-based fibers or animal-based fibers, they can be ethically harvested. They are biodegradable and they also support local and traditional fair trade agricultural industries. So, I mean, 
it's kind of a really great area because you've got these fossil fuel based fabrics which are being classed by one organization as highly sustainable and by another organization as completely unsustainable so it's also about that cancel culture as well so and who is um supporting these organizations because sometimes these rating systems or the way someone is trying to become more sustainable over time it actually has nothing to do with sustainability but it's more about a political monopolization of power through these rating systems or like the work that they're doing so i don't know is is what oatly was doing related to another company or another brand or another industry trying to monopolize political power by appearing more sustainable you know so i i think there's so many questions here that need to be addressed before i can make an opinion on it you know so let's move on to the next question um as an ecologist um you have insights to the science behind sustainability that are really really fascinating so would you mind going into a little bit more detail about um i'm gonna hope that i say this correctly a plastic conglomerate I still said it wrong yes that's right <laughs> plastic conglomerate yes <laughs> um you know like basically we know that how much plastic packaging is created in our world every day all around us and in fashion you know when every time you get a piece of clothing like what's it wrapped in plastic why does it need to be wrapped in plastic no one knows Ooh, but that's <laughs> my existence is plastic <laughs> Exactly. Uh, you know, bottles, all sorts. So, you know, when you've had these microplastics in our beauty products and general waste clothing and the environment for over 50 years, it's bound to kind of re-come back and affect us in some way or form. So what's happening is you've got some beaches in the Pacific, which used to have white shells and beautiful white sand. They're now covered in a tiny, tiny pieces of a rainbow of plastics. So Sand is actually being replaced worldwide with tiny pieces of plastic, especially on the most remote beaches is where you find this. Oh, really? And, yeah. And what's happening is you get these, some, some of these beaches are so contaminated that, you know, when you have these cleanup effects, within a year or two, these cleanups are... So some of these beaches in the Pacific are littered with white shells. They, they're now littered with tiny pieces of plastic. And over time, this is going to get worse and worse and worse. So. Some beaches are so contaminated that after a cleanup, within a year or two, that all the plastic kind of returns to that beach. And these tiny pieces of plastic and rubbish are accumulating on the shoreline and a new type of rock called a plastic glomerate. It's not necessarily a rock per se. It's more like an anthropogenic substance, but I'm not going to go into the politics of that because <laughs> that's another story with science. Um, they've been taking over shorelines across beaches across the globe. And what it is, it's... Um, I'm just going to call it a rock. Sorry, scientists, if you hate me, but I'm going to call it a rock. Um, it's uh, it's between a waste. It's a waste fabric or plastics put together with rock shell organic matter combined under heat to form these plastic mass rocks, which now line beaches, especially in the Pacific and in places like Hawaii. And I think what's most alarming about this is, is that they were first discovered or described. They weren't discovered in 2014, but they were first described as a scientific um, substance in 2014 and since then the numbers of these rocks have been increasing over like, over time and getting greater and greater so where once you used to have a conglomerate of say shells with dirt and a few maybe like crab shells and that kind of thing you don't anymore you kind of getting more and more of these plastic blobs everywhere and I think it's really important to be aware of this because it just shows you the presence of anthropogenic 
waste in the environment. And it's a testament to our dire need to really address the, the global waste and plastic pollution in the environment. Because if we don't, and if we only start to care about it when we're going on our holiday to Barbados and the beach is covered in tiny pieces of plastic and we're upset, or you know, we're, instead of going in the water and getting stung by a jellyfish, we get wrapped in plastic. And that's only when we start to care about, that's probably too late. Like, um, you know, because our individual choices and decisions really do have an effect somewhere in the world, as we were talking about earlier. And I think that's a really important idea. You know, if every rock on the beach was now a plastic blob instead of a natural rock, how would you feel? Would you be going to gemstone shops and getting like these little plastic glomerates? No, you wouldn't because they're hideous. You know what I mean? Um, and the plastic pollution in the marine environment is so devastating that when I was doing conservation with seabirds, um, I remember I was doing an island survey of a particular island. I saw a crevice. And when I looked inside, it was just covered with plastic up to the top, maybe like five meters of plastic. And so as I belayed down into it, I found the skeletal remains of a cormorant at the bottom of that. And that cormorant had actually ingested plastic and died. And, you know, I was on a conservation project here and we're trying to conserve this particular bird. And here it was, you know, dead because we're so not aware of the damage that we do. And then it just really hits home, you know, how cyclic what we are doing right now at home versus these birds and these animals are, are facing right now. So it's just, I don't know, every time I see like an animal that's died from ingested plastic, I still, it just, I don't know, I just feel like screaming and uh, it just makes me so upset because, yeah. I can imagine it's, yeah. we don't think, as we said earlier, we don't think about what we're doing. A lot of us don't think about the impact outside of our four walls. And yeah. that's where this, I guess, the start of this podcast came from and thinking about the greater good and being more mindful and more conscious in what we're doing and being able to say to everybody, if you even just think about one thing that you're doing and try to implement a few more little changes, then the impact could be so great further down the line. You may not necessarily see it, but mm. in reducing what you're doing, especially with regards to like plastic in this in this example, you don't know what change it could cause five, 10, 20 years down the line somewhere else. Which of course. The world is bigger than the space that you occupy. So, yeah. Definitely. And I think when it's permanent, when it's permanent destruction, it's, you know, we, we only occupy this space for like up to like 100, 110 years maybe. And then the damage that we leave behind lasts for millions of years for each individual person, you know, and then you times that by how many people are on earth. It's devastating when you just think about it like that. So, yeah. Yeah. I think also we've had, um, we had the RSPCA on um, last season talking about litter. And um, I think that there's a lack of education to what, when we talk about plastic pollution, what that actually means, because well, I think when we talk about plastic pollution, think people just think of water bottles and that's it. Yeah. But everything, as we've just said earlier, everything that we consume has plastic in it. There's no avoidance. So it's just the, the case of if you have certain things, knowing how to cut them up properly so that when you do recycle them, they're not going to affect the kind of environment and animals within it. Mm. And I, I just don't think, 
I just don't think we are educated properly, just full stop on that, in terms of what we need to be doing. And that's really scary because we are like given these bags for life and told that that's going to, you know, change, yeah, change everything. If everyone gets a bag for life, then we're going to stop plastic and actually making it worse. And but people don't know these facts. And I just feel like someone needs to do a massive campaign backed by the government. And this is always the issue. Everything has everything we talk about always needs to go back to the government um, and the governments in every country. But I just don't feel like there's enough interest in saving the planet um, because we're thinking about the economy. But if we just think smarter, I feel like we need to get like an economist who's involved in envi- the environmentalist side as well so that they can be like, OK, here's an environmentally friendly way to also make money. Boom. Mm. And just change everyone's minds but it's just we're a bit lost at the moment with what we can actually achieve because no one knows what they're supposed to be doing 100% agree with that I think there's such a lack of education as well and most people actually have no idea what is going on outside of you know like their you know outside of their city that they live in and how it affects everything so I think it needs to be totally about awareness and kind of creating that alarming sense of urgency but not from like screaming and yelling about it I think it needs to be like in a visual way where people see something and they feel oh my god is that what's actually happening kind of thing I don't know if it has to be like an exhibition or something that's like forced down everyone's throats or something like that yeah I just feel like when you when you were talking earlier about how when we wash our clothes depending on the materials that we you know we bought everything's going into the water stream and that's causing plastic pollution as well. People don't think about those kind of things. Yeah. I, I started this, post- this podcast with Bianca. I never thought about this kind of stuff. Didn't even think that that would be possible. So it's these little things of like men, like visualising that in your mind and being like, mm. oh, wow, that's a lot to take ownership of. Yeah. I wash my clothes and I'm ruining the environment. Yeah, it's quite it's quite worrying, and I think really it, it's all about education and really teaching people how even the smallest things they do will affect it. But I I suppose it's something that can be taught, and it can be taught in quite a short space of time as well. Like, I mean, you can see how much people are receptive to new knowledge as well, especially with all the social climate that's going on right now. Everyone wants to know; they want to know how they can change, how they can be better. Okay, so on that note then, our last question of today. If you could ask the world to make one change, what would that be and what would it solve? So I had to think a lot about this question just because there's so many different ways to think about this. And actually, what I came to was, um, as consumers, we need to take responsibility of our own actions. So... um, I'm sure I understand, you know, like fast fashion, why it works so well. It's because it's addictive. You know, you will buy one item and it creates a three-day endorphin high, which wears off after the third day. And then you can re-get that high back again if you go back into the store and buy something new. And that's kind of the the main reason why fast fashion is so addictive. But, you know, um, we actually, as consumers, we can't just rely on companies and brands to always be good or do good we as consumers need to resist the addictive urge to overconsume, buy responsibly and less often because as consumers buying less products will result in brands 
selling less stock, which means they'll make losses from a lack of sales. Therefore, they will make less product for the next product round and just to remain profitable. So, you know, buying less stuff will make brands make losses and therefore they'll make less product, which actually is a way as a collective consumer behavior, we can um, turn fast fashion into slow fashion by 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 changing our buying choices and and really being responsible with how much we buy and when we buy. And this is kind of the same where we fall fur out of the market and into private boutiques. So we are powerful together. And the other thing that kind of is relates to this is we need to change the celebrity culture of like, you know, those tabloid things that you see on Daily Mail. Oh, look, she's wearing this new outfit. Oh, look, she's wearing this new outfit. We need to make it really cool to wear the same outfit multiple times. And celebrities need to be like the forerunners of this. Together, we're powerful, basically, but responsible consumer choices can lead to responsible action and change across the entire industry. So we're powerful together. We need to know that. Oh, my God, I love that. Totally agree with that. Ah, oh, that's so good. Thank you so much for coming on today. Genuinely, so interesting. All of your insights and your opinions as well. Um, so yeah, this was fantastic. If we wanted to find out more about you and what you're doing, where could we find you? Um, you can find me on Instagram under Zinnia Kumar, Z I N N I A Kumar, K U M A R or my website zinniakuma.com uh, and I'm happy to like answer questions or like start a debate uh, yeah because I think or everything here needs to be talked about so definitely. yeah yes if you start a debate get us involved as well. <laughs> yes definitely it was such a pleasure talking with you